You're listening to War Dogs Podcast. During the Vietnam War, through the hours of darkness, over 500 sentry dogs and their handlers patrolled along the perimeters of U.S. Air Force bases. These are their stories. Here's your host, Tom Shamba. Hello, I'm your host, Tom Shamba. Thank you for listening. If you're a new listener for the War Dogs Podcast, welcome. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so that you can be notified when a new episode is posted. Today, we're going to be talking to Ron Aiello. Ron is a United States Marine uh, scout dog handler, served in Vietnam. Uh, welcome, Ron. Well, good Tom. afternoon, your time. Uh, good afternoon. Here. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, when you're, when you're doing these things across the country, it gets really confusing sometimes what time zone you're in yeah and... right yeah i just happened to think about it last night i said 12 noon i'm going wait a minute he may be talking about mountain time <laughs> that's why i emailed you just well, to make i sure. really am glad you did that i appreciate you taking uh, sure. the time to do this too by the way to give you an idea how it's working so far uh we are listened to literally from coast to coast and and border to border in the United States. And over in Europe, Italy, France, Britain, actually even Russia. I mean, this thing has really uh, reached out to a lot of people. Oh, great. I'm assuming primarily military police, dog handler kind of people, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting. Interesting to, to see that dynamic. I I think it uh provides us a great history of the dog programs that we worked in uh you know when i, I a year ago my daughter and son-in-law uh worked for uh robert kiyosaki and they do all of his podcasts uh face, facetime videos all that kind of stuff and i was always talking about canine and, and all of the people and things that we did while we were there and my son-in-law said, Dad, why are you not putting that on a podcast and capturing that history? And did you know Ruben Guthmiller or Guterres by any Ruben? He was from Texas, but he he Ruben. was in Van Rang with me. Anyways, he passed away here this year. And as he was getting uh, sicker and, and having issues, his sons and I would talk and and uh, they said, you know, dad never, ever shared what he did in Vietnam. He said, we have no idea. I said, well, I was with him. So I could tell you some of the stories. Um, so I did a podcast with him. Unfortunately, he was not really capable to uh, respond to the questions. Okay. So uh, it really brought to light maybe how important these things are. You know, you know, there are a lot of dog handlers out there that served in Vietnam that still, to this day, don't talk about what they did. Uh, we, we, New Jersey, when we did a, we did a memorial back in 2006 uh, in, in New Jersey, a war dog memorial, and um, there were on the wall, 14, the New Jersey wall, there was 14 dog handlers that were killed. Or not all of them were killed, they, they died later. 
but their name still goes on the wall. So we invited all the families. And one family said, responded, our son, our son wasn't a dog handler. And I says, I hate to tell you this, but your son was a dog handler in the army with a certain unit and so forth. And when he was there, and they says, he wasn't a dog handler. I had to prove to them that he was a dog handler. He came back and he never talked about what he did in Vietnam. For some reason, he just couldn't do it. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times, I think some of them do don't say anything because they figure, well, they're not going to understand what I'm trying to tell them anyway. So why even tell them? You know. I um, think that's a that's a big portion of it right there. I think yeah. people feel like nobody understands. And then again, do you do you want to talk about combat in Vietnam where you shot somebody? I mean, do you know if you've not served in the military, that doesn't sound like a nice thing, you know? I mean, I I went no, from the military to police work and I couldn't share those stories either. You know, it was just difficult. Most of the people I talked to, let me shut this off. Uh, most of the people I talked to when I got back were either dog handlers who had been there or other military people that served say in Korea or World War II that knew a little bit about dogs in service. Now I would talk to them, but I normally I didn't talk to a civilian, try to tell them what we did. Because it was hard to explain exactly what we did. Yeah. And in talking about that, you were a scout dog handler, which yeah, obviously I, uh, is a lot different than a sentry dog handler. Right. Uh, I was one of the first to 30 Marine scout dog teams to be deployed in Vietnam. Uh, they reactivated in 1965, they reactivated the first Marine Scout Dog platoon uh, that was deactivated after World War II. Wow. So they reactivated, there were 30 of us. Well, there was a total of 42 in the unit, but only 30 dog handlers. And, and the Marine Corps uh, did not have a training program, but the Army did down in Fort Benning, Georgia. So they sent us down to Fort Benning, Georgia for three months to be trained by the army. And at the three months, we got, uh, we broke it up into 15 dogs each on C-130 planes and they flew us over to Vietnam. Uh, when did you get there? We arrived uh, on March 3rd and the 4th, uh, each plane one day apart. Uh, the third and the fourth of March of 1966. So you were right up front. Yeah. And then how long were you there? I was I was there 13 months. Uh, after 13 months, of course, they rotated us back and left the we left the dogs with new handlers that came in. Now there was about probably six or eight of us that wanted to stay. Uh, with the unit for another tour, but they wouldn't let us because they already trained 30 dog, uh, Marine dog handlers over at Fort Benning and they were coming over to relieve us. And that would have meant that eight of them, six or eight of them wouldn't have had a dog. So they said, no, you can't, if you want to extend for, it'd be a grunt in the infantry. And we said, no, <laughs> yeah, we'll do it as a dog handler. You know, I, I was confident in what my dog could do, Stormy. 
she pulled me through a number of tight spots in Vietnam and I felt another tour would be good, uh, but not, not in the infantry. Tell me, because I don't really understand the scout dog program. How did it, A, how did they train you? And what was your function as a, as a scout dog handler versus like a sentry dog handler? We walked a perimeter. As a right, scout sentry, dog handler, what did you do? Right. Uh, yeah, sentry dog teams walked a section of the perimeter at night to protect the base from infiltration. We as scout dog handlers went out in front of the patrol which was whatever kind of patrol it was, a search and destroy mission, uh, a night ambush site, to go out to an ambush site at night, we would lead that patrol, whether it was a squad, a platoon, or if it was a company, there may be three dogs or four dogs together working in with that unit. Uh, we would go out in front, depending on the terrain, if uh, we were in heavy terrain, uh, you know, uh, Maybe we'd only be a few few yards ahead of everybody. If we're out in the rice paddies in the fields, we could be, you know, 200, 200 yards up ahead. Now, uh, so it would be stormy. My dog and I, my dog would be on a six foot leash uh, attached to my left wrist. Uh, in case I got shot or anything, the dog couldn't run off. He's tied to me. And I would have to my right rear, a Marine bodyguard or shotgun, and he would have a full automatic rifle. So as we're going, my job is to look at my dog, concentrate on my dog, watch for any type of alert. Now her alert, uh, and most alerts, the dog would actually stop and almost point like a hunting dog, because they smell, it, it was the smell in the air that they, they would pick up the scent out front, we work with the wind. You'd have the wind, you'd want the wind from, uh, you know, nine o'clock to three o'clock <clears throat> uh, coming from that direction, which is the frontal. And they would be trained to sniff the air or listen. Now, like on my first patrol that I ever ran, uh, we had to search two Viet Cong villages. And so, we went into the first village. I led the, I had a squad behind me of Marines. And I went into the first house, which is, you know, they're just bamboo and straw or whatever. And I went, I would go in first and Stormy would sniff around. She sniffed the walls. She sniffing, we'd go into the kitchen, little kitchen cooking area. Cause sometimes there might be a, a bunker or a tunnel underneath the cooking area. And they figured, the smell of the food cooking and everything would distract anybody, uh, but the dog could still smell it. So, and, and it's the same thing they do. They did in the Middle East. They go into the building, they'd search it with their dog. If there was nothing there, they would come out and say to the, the Marines behind them, it's all clear. So then they can go into the room and physically move things, move a dresser, open a door, without worrying about an explosive going off. And so then I would train for that as well. Yeah. So mm -hmm. so then I would move over to the next house and the next house and the next house. And so we went through that one village and it was it was clear there was nothing there. So Stormy and I uh, 
left that village and we start going down the trail. And must have went, I don't know, 50, 60 feet and came to like a clearing, small clearing. And one of the things we were trained when, when our dogs would alert, the first thing we would do, your dog stopped, the first thing you do would kneel down by your dog, kind of put your arm on your dog and say, you know, in my case, what do you see, Stormy? What do you see, girl? You know, because she's, she's trying to tell me something. She may be pointing to the front, the left, the right. Uh, I have to look at the terrain, the wind. So she stopped. We took about two feet, two steps into the clearing. She stopped and looked up to the right flank. So I just automatically started to kneel down as we were trained to do. And as I started to kneel down, a sniper from the front flank, the right flank up in the trees took a shot at me and it went over my head. And the reason it went over my head was because I was starting to kneel down. If I was still standing up, the, the sniper would probably take me out. So in that case, then what happened was to our left flank, there was this burn of dirt. And I says, come on, girl, we ran and we dove over behind the dirt to get cover. Then the Marines behind me, they came in, jumped over, and then they started firing up into the trees. They took out the sniper. So that was that was my first patrol with my dog. So it alerted, uh, your dog would alert on people in uh, ordinance? Would I? Yes, yeah, uh, people, ordinance, unusual sounds. Now, in this case, she either heard a safety from the rifle being taken off or a twig break, a branch breaking in the tree. And that's what she alerted on. I don't think it wasn't set at that point. Uh, the wind was not coming from the right flank. And on top of it, the, the sniper was up in the tree. She heard a sound that shouldn't have been there. And that's what she reacted to. That's amazing. So that's, that's what the scout dogs did. So they were, they were trained on human scent, uh, ordinance, uh, All types of ordnance, explosives, uh, rifles, smell of gun oil. How about a bouncing Betty? Would she pick that up on the ground? Yeah, she would pick up landmine, any type of landmines or anything like that. She would pick that up. Uh, two, two types of scents. One, explosives. The other, human. Give me an example, human scent. So we go to the next village. And uh, so I searched one building or house and I'm walking over to the next one and it was a good clearing between the two houses. And Stormy stops and she looks to her left, left flank. Now, the only thing is there is a bunch of weeds, grass kind of, you know, weeds and grass and tall grass in the background. And my bodyguards say, I don't see anything. I says, I'm not seeing anything either. So I says, let's go in a little bit on it. So we started to go in. Now I'm thinking that they may have taken off, gone into the tall grass to hide from us. 
because the dog alerted it, and they've done that in the past. So uh, we get about two-thirds of the way to the back, and Stormy stops and sits down, and she's looking at the ground. And I'm thinking, oh, shit, landmine. Yeah, some type of explosive. So the body card comes over, he takes out his bayonet, he goes over, he starts clearing it really gently. There's nothing there. He starts digging and he's gone, he's digging and he's digging it. Now, now he's about 12 inches into the ground and he digs a little bit more and he reaches down and comes out with a plastic bag. Now in the plastic bag is a bunch of papers like documents. There are <laughs> two diamonds in, in the bag. Wow. And there are makeshift a makeshift gas mask. Are we being filmed? Or you want can, hold on. Yeah, I can see. The makeshift gas mask. I got it on display here. Wow. That's it. Put it over your head. I don't think it would do a damn thing. It's made out of plastic and it, it's it's a, a breathable material in the front here and clear plastic here for the eyes. This was in the bag. I kept this. I figured they didn't need it. <laughs> to turn in. And and so my bodyguard looks at me. He says, hey, there's two diamonds and there's two of us. <laughs> Merry Christmas. I said, yeah, that sounds good. So we each took one. And I, I took this. We turned in the documents. We turned out to be uh, great documents because it was information on the North Vietnamese Army, some of their positions. So we, we did turn that in. So she picked up, what she picked up in there is human scent. Now I, I and and I think after a while we were there, they started to difference the difference between our scent, American human scent, and the Viet Vietnamese. Probably from the the different type of foods we eat, uh, so they could actually start to tell the difference. The 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 alert was much stronger when they smelled the the Vietnamese uh, scent. But anyway, that was that was from human scent. So, were most of your patrols or all your patrols during the day? Uh, no, we <laughs> Marine Corps was a little crazy. We did uh, we did night patrols. Uh, we would usually do uh, uh, patrols to take out, say, a, a squad out for an ambush site. Well, you know, after dark, get dark, we, we move move out, we take lead. Usually we take two dog teams with us uh, and switch back and forth. Of course, depending how far out we had to go. Uh, so we would, our job was to get that squad to the ambush site, set up the ambush, and then get the squad back 
to the base safely. Most of the time, it was kind of, <laughs> uh, you ever watch that comedy, Benny Hill? No, I haven't. No, Benny Hill was a British show, comedy, with different skits. Well, some of, some of these night patrols were like that. <laughs> they, they were just hilarious, you know? Uh, you couldn't see well. Um, when I depended on my dog, Stormy, when I hooked up, when I put a harness on, we worked with a harness. I, when I put the harness on her and snapped the leash onto it, she knew it was time to work. And she knew she could not bark. They were trained not to bark. Yeah, that would be important. Yeah, so she would go out forward and be pulling on the leash really hard. At night, if she alerted, she, she would stop my leash would go slack. At that point, I knew she was alerting. Even if I couldn't see her, if it was a little dark, it was hard to see her, I knew she alerted because the leash went slack, which meant she stopped and she's alerting. So you might have an ordinance in front of you or you just might have a human being. You don't know, you don't know. Uh, Did you not carry a weapon? <laughs> I had a 45. Oh. That was my weapon. They only issued us 45s because they didn't know whether we could handle a rifle and a dog at the same time. So we were only issued 45s. After a few times of going out, we would go to supply sergeant and say, Sarge, I want to check out that shotgun. <laughs> you know? Or you would buy from a, from another Marine, you buy a, a rifle that they had, you know, that was their own personal rifle. You know, so you kind of bought and sold. I mean, I had I had nine millimeters. Uh, I had a Thompson submachine gun, which I got rid of. I, I went out on patrol for about four days. Must have been the hottest four days of the year. First thing I did was I sold it. It was too heavy to carry. Yeah, with with uh, I had the, let's see, I had the, the Thompson with the, a, a 20 round clip. And then I had five more 20 round clips on the belt. <laughs> it, it's just well too heavy. Armed. It's too heavy. So I sold that one. Then I had a shotgun. You know, uh, they finally, after we left, the new, the new uh, dog handlers, they were finally issued rifles. We had AR-15s. They were the M16 with a slide hand, you know, slide reverse stock. Right. It fit between my elbow and my hand. Yeah, so well, I we tried. Walk along with it. Yeah, well, see, the Marines at that time had the M14. Big that was a heavy, heavy weapon, and you had with magazines. There's a lot of weight you had to carry. That's why they didn't think we could handle that. So we were trying to, and we we had no luck. That there was an M14 made for for tanks, tankered M14, it was a shorter barrel. But we 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 could never get them. We kept trying to get them because we figured that would be a good weapon for us to carry. So were you at a particular base or? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. We were at, we were at, we were out just outside of the Denang, uh, behind uh, Hill 327. Uh, 
we had our base camp set up there. We, bu we built it ourselves. There was nothing there. When we first got there, uh, we had a temporary quarters down by the general's quarters uh, for about two weeks. And then, then we start building our own uh, camp. And uh, in the meantime, because we couldn't, we couldn't take the dogs out because we had just gotten there. And we, you figure we left Georgia late February. And a few days later, we're in Vietnam and we're, you know, it's over a hundred degrees. So we had to be very careful with the dogs uh, with the heat stroke. And we end up, we did lose a dog, one dog we lost to it. So we had to climatize the dogs for at least 20 days. And what we do, uh, you know, after a few days, we start walking short distances and back, and then we keep increasing the distance each day, bring plenty of water with us for the dogs until we were able to, you know, go out several miles and back with no problem. So once, once the dogs were ready, then at that point, we let the Marine Corps know that uh, first Marine scout dog platoon was ready to be deployed. And then we started to get requests to go out on missions. Now, I was fortunate. Uh, I was one of the lucky ones. I went out on the first, one of the first missions. And the only reason my, my name starts with an A, <laughs> they went That's alphabetically. <laughs> so Ayello and Brent, <laughs> went on the first mission <laughs> together, you know, which was great. It was a good learning experience. It wasn't a a, an, um, a dangerous mission, you know, so it was a good learning point. Uh, it was only a couple of days. And then, then I finally, after that, went on my first real mission. And that was the one where we had to search the, the two villages uh, where, with a sniper in the tree. Uh, but... Uh, so there were only 30 of us and uh, the dogs worked out really well. Uh, we had 30 dogs and three of them were female dogs, which was the first time the Marine Corps had used female dogs. They always been male. So they, they used three female dogs to see how they worked out and they worked out terrific. I had one Stormy um, and there was uh, Candy and Cricket were the other two dogs. And they were small, smaller than the regular German Shepherd, you know, which we didn't, my dog, my dog was about 60, 65 pounds. Some of the other ones were like 95 pounds, uh, which made it easier for her with the heat. She was able to handle the heat much better because she was smaller. Uh, but as far as working, uh, detecting the dangers and everything, there was no difference between male and female at all. Yeah, I got there in 67, February 67. And uh, the year I was there, Da Nang was a pretty tough base. I mean, there was a lot of combat there. Yeah, yeah, it was. When we first got there, it was just starting to build up. And we, we left in uh, April, six, April 67 is when we left. <clears throat> the end of April, uh, we left. And they were, they were really starting to build it up a lot. Did you get any uh, attacks or sniper fire while you were out? I'm sorry, what's that? 
were you, did you ever uh, run into combat while you're out where you were in, you know, indirect line of fire? Uh, yeah, <laughs> a few times. Yeah, I would think. Yeah, a few times too. Yeah, there, uh, yeah, you could be out there and all of a sudden you, you got mortars coming in on you. Yeah. Uh, that happened a couple of times and, and I just found out the best thing to do is just get down and don't move. Because when you start running around, you don't know where. <laughs> you don't know where it's going to go. <laughs> so I just I just say, Stormy, down. And she laid down and I laid down right next to her. And we just wait until it's over. You know, uh, I, I didn't want to take a chance of, you know, running. I thought I always felt like I probably a better chance of getting hit if I'm running around trying to cut, get cover. How many people in your scout unit all together? How many? Backup well, we have 30 dog teams. No, soldiers that were behind you, Marines that were behind you. That went it, out it, with it, it, it varied. Uh, it could be a squad, 13 Marines. Could be a platoon, which is what, 30-something Marines, 40-something Marines. Or we could do be doing uh, a couple of times, we did a um, company, company search and rescue, uh, search and destroy where uh, we would leave one platoon, full platoon, and the other two platoons would be out, would set up a web out forward. They may, may, may have gone out like two days earlier and set up a blockade five, six miles up the way. And, and they would hide. And then we would start the search. Usually, uh, well, the, the last one I did uh, was with Dave Grayless. It was his last mission before he was going back because he only had like nine months left when he got to Vietnam. Um, so we went out together and we, we, we went out front online, the two of us side by side, and we separated pretty good. And then we moved out. Uh, it was a great mission. Um, we hadn't moved out that far and all of a sudden both dogs picked up scent or something sound or whatever from the left flank so we moved into it and it turned out with some old french trenches from when the french were there and what we figured out was that there was some Viet Cong in the trenches spying on the on the base camp their base camp that we we're working out of and when they saw we alerted they went into the tall grass so nothing we could do at that point. So we moved forward. And all of a sudden the dog, uh, Devil, which was uh, Dave's dog, picked up an alert to the front and all of a sudden the Viet Cong start running across the field shooting at us. So one of the Marines took him out. And then uh, from the right flank, all of a sudden I hear this yelling and screaming, this, high-pitched woman's voice that was there you know they were really annoying when they start yeah, yeah yeah and she starts yelling at me and she's running towards me with this big ass knife in her hand so i'm over there i pull out my 45 <laughs> as fast as i can which was not fast enough and i shot at her but i just nicked her in the arm and she kept coming stormy jumped out in front of me hit hit her in the side and kind of stopped her enough and my shotgun, who was behind me, he comes around and he hits her with the butt of the rifle and knocks her out. 
I sat on the ground with Stormy. I was like shaking like shit. <laughs> I was peeing my pants, I think, you know. It was, I mean, really, I mean, I see this lady with a knife and go, oh, shit, no, you know. It's like, I'm going to die, baby, you know. Uh, and so I said, I had to sit I, I told myself, I said, I got to sit down. I said, I'm, I'm too nervous right now. <laughs> so I sat down and I'm praising Stormy, you know. <laughs> so they took her prisoner. They, they took the body wherever they put the body, the, the Yukon. And we moved forward again. So the, all of a sudden, Stormy stops and she's looking at the ground. And I look over to Devil, Dave and Devil, and Devil's looking at the ground where he is. We're about uh, 2060. We're about 60 to 80 feet apart from each other. <clears throat> I'm going, what the hell? So my shotgun. I says, she's looking at the ground. I don't know if we got landmines here or what. So he starts clearing it. What it was, was an air hole to the tunnels below. So now we, we knew there was tunnels. We we're always standing on top of tunnels. So then they said, you think maybe we could find the entrance to the tunnels? I says, well, yeah, we could try. You know, I had never done it before. And Dave hadn't done it before. So we start searching and we're coming to the end of the field. And it's kind of like a mound of dirt in front of us there. And, and both dogs look to the left and they keep looking to the left. So they're learning on something to the left flank. So the, the dirt in front of us goes down to the left and it comes around to the back. And you can kind of see at the end of it, there's a little trail going up. And I says, she's alerting, they're alerting to something behind the hill here. And they, so they, I says, you gotta send somebody in. So they send a, a fire team, which is four Marines. They go up the little trail and behind the, the mound of dirt. And then they finally come back and they say, there's nothing. Now the dogs are still alerting on it. I says, there's gotta be something there. I says, I'll tell you what, I normally don't like doing this, I says, but I'll go in. You stay close to me and cover me. So I went up the trail, this little trail, come around the backside. As soon as I came around the backside, Stormy stopped and looked into the backside of the hill. There's a lot of shrub, bushes and stuff. I says to the one Marine, I says, try moving some of those bushes around. Look behind them because she's alerting right there. And they did, and there's there was the tunnel hole. So of course we weren't going to go in it. So they blew the tunnel. They threw uh, some charges down into it, and blew it up. <clears throat> I always suspected uh, on our base that there were tunnels that would come into our post periodically. Uh -huh. We would get an alert, and we would take it about halfway across the post and then all of a sudden there would be nothing and i i always suspected they were going down yeah, probably yeah probably tunnels yeah now we got so that was the end of the, that was the end of the day that was just a one day search and destroy mission and so 
we we uh, we we got back to the the, the base camp, uh, the unit we were working with, and and as we're Dave and I are walking in, they start clapping. Dave and I, what the hell's going on? <laughs> and they're clapping as we're coming in. What it, it turned out. And we, this is the first time it, it's ever happened that you're on a mission and you see what the end result is. You know, because you can go out on a mission, you know, be out there for a week or two weeks and then you leave. Somebody else maybe come, comes in from your unit and you never know what actually happened at the end of that mission. So what it turned out was there was an, a, a, a platoon of North Vietnamese soldiers in that area. And all the time we're going there, we keep getting these alerts. Well, they see they see us, they can spot us. So they keep moving back and they keep moving back. Well, they moved back into the other two platoon of Marines <laughs> and they captured them without, without firing a shot, they captured them. So that's what they were clapping for. We didn't know it. And we would have not have known it if the captain the company commander hadn't told us about it. We would have left the next day because we were leaving the next day to go to another unit. We would have never known what we actually accomplished that day. And, and it was great. I mean, I really enjoyed it. It was great for Dave because Dave was there nine months with his dog devil and nothing ever happened. Every patrol he went on, nothing ever happened. And he was really discouraged that he was leaving Vietnam. <laughs> And he and his dog really didn't accomplish anything. And this last patrol that he went on, he did. So Man, he was really happy. To have at the end. Yeah, so he was really happy when he left. Yeah, I said, we still had about three, four months left after he left. But th that was a, probably a patrol that we were detecting all kinds of things that we were trained to do. That's amazing, it's so different you know, than what we did in the, in the sentry dog uh, world altogether. I got- Oh yeah, it was a, yeah, completely different. Yeah, completely different. Matter of fact, I put up uh, Nemo last year, this past year for, for the Hero Award in DC that took place in March. And, and they presented, um, Thromberg's passed away about a year ago. But we were able to get his son from South Carolina to come to the event, and we presented him with the award for Nemo. Yeah, that that's an amazing story in itself. Yeah, it was. Yeah, and I, and I wanted I wanted it to be told, uh, and him the dog to be recognized, of course, and Thromberg also. You know, so uh, but it worked out really well, and yeah. I was glad to meet his son. Well, I got a couple of questions for you. Uh, number one, when you uh, left the Marines, did you ever experience PTSD? And number two, where the hell are you? I'm what in New Jersey. I'm in Burlington, you? New Jersey. Uh, yeah, I came back uh, when I got back from Vietnam. <laughs> uh, it was 42 of us in, in the unit. 41 of us got sent home and stationed to, at bases close to their home. You know, uh, I'm from New Jersey. They send me to Key West, Florida. 
Well, that was close. I thought, I thought, wait a minute. I says, why are you guys getting close to home? You know, one's in Pen couple were in Pennsylvania, so they sent, sent them Langley, you know, Quantico, and play, you know, like that, where they could drive home. Key uh, West, Florida. I says, can't get any close. That's kind of like from one end of this country to the other. What had happened is, when I enlisted in the Marine Corps, <laughs> I just kind of disappeared one night. Got my car from New Jersey, drove to Virginia, sold my car, bought a bus ticket to Miami, and spent two weeks on the beach. After a week, I went to the Marine Corps recruiter. I figured I had about enough money to get me through one more week. So I said to the Marine Corps recruiter, I want to go in one week from today. And he says, okay. So one week from today, I showed up at the recruiters and got on the bus and, and ended up in Paris Island for training. Well, when they look at my records, they saw that I enlisted in Miami. So they figured, well, we'll send them to Key West. They thought they would, you know, send me close to home. They didn't really look at where my home was, which was New Jersey, which was a good thing because Marine Barracks, Key West, Florida was great. And I met my wife there, whom I'm still married to, you know. Turned out so, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, yeah, PTSD, yes, no question about it. I, I had it, didn't realize it. I, I would, fits of anger. I would break things. Never got physical with anybody. Uh, you know, I, I, my wife, my two sons, never got physical at all with them. But I would break things, you know, be just destructive. You know, I get pissed off back then. You had the Walkman radios. I get pissed off and I throw it against the wall and break it. You know, I broke a coffee table and then I cry later because I got to go buy a new one. You know, S stupid, stupid stuff like that. Or I get in the car, it was be at night. I never had the big argument because uh, I was getting upset. I get in the car and drive around a while. I just cooled down. Finally, I. I, I went to the VA in, in the early 80s in Philadelphia, and they were terrible. I went to them for about six months, and I said, I could do just as much at home than they're doing for, for me here. So I just stopped going. So my business, we opened up a business, Antique Restoration. I, I restored China and porcelain for museums and collectors, dealers, statues, phases, and all that. One of my clients from North Jersey, he was a Vietnam veteran, not a dog handler, but a Vietnam veteran. He kept saying, why don't you go to the VA? Why don't you go to the VA? I said, no, they suck. He goes, no, he says, I go to one up in North Jersey. They are terrific. So after about a year of him bugging me about it, I said, okay, I will. So I went to, um, signed, I made an appointment at Fort Dix, New Jersey, the army base. They had a clinic there. And they turned out to be fantastic. And then they moved moved their clinic to a civilian area off base, uh, which is more modern. And I've been going to them now for 10 years, about 10 years or so, maybe a little more. And they're terrific. So I, I, I you know, I go there, they, they call me when it's time, when they think I should come in for a checkup, you know? Uh, they take their time with me. The doctors are great. Every, everybody's fantastic. They t do my blood work. They call me the next day to let me know how the blood work was. 
So you, my own family doctor doesn't do that. Did you get any impact from Agent Orange? Uh, yeah, I, I, that, I got some issues there. Uh, I was, I, um, I filled out the paperwork, got back in early eighties about Agent Orange because I came in contact it twice. Once walking into an area that had already been sprayed, the foliage was dead. And once actually we got sprayed on. Uh, and I, I was really worried, uh, you know, uh, my wife wanted to have children. We've been married a while, wanted to have children. And I kept saying to her, no, no, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And what it was in the back of my mind, I was worried because of the Agent Orange. Yeah. That we may have children that have deformities or, you know, some type of mental condition. And it really scared me. Um, and I finally went to my family doctor, uh, which he was this great doctor and I could sit down there and really talk to him. And he talked me, talked me through it. You know, he says, you know, look at it. It's a very slight chance that there would be a problem there. It's small, very small. And that shouldn't stop you from having children. So at that time I said, oh, you know, we just, we both decided to have the children. So it was, you know, I was like 40 years old when we had our first son. So, and my, he's, he's a major in the Marine Corps today. He's down at Camp, he's at Camp Lejeune, done uh, several tours to the Middle East. And my youngest one's an engineer in uh, Texas. So they both turned out fine. Everything turned, it was just a lot of my worrying because of the yeah I, I think back then that was a concern because we were ignorant about how it was going to impact us yeah because we were there that's the time when they were spraying 67 I, 68 69 we it all the time as dog handlers and i yeah. ended up with all kinds of you know heart disease uh, diabetes all of the agent orange issues I yeah and a lot, yeah i i know a number of the my friends, dog handlers that did come down with some of those conditions from Agent Orange, liver conditions, kidney, yeah. uh, cancer. Uh, my best friend from Vietnam died of cancer from it, came down with cancer. Uh, matter of fact, he didn't even tell me he had it. He didn't, he didn't want me to know. Uh, I didn't find out until he actually passed on. Uh, the room that you're in, all of that stuff that's behind you, what is that? Do you write? Well, I, uh, in the year, year uh, 1998, yeah, 1998, I went to a, a, a dog show where somebody had emailed me, said, I got a little war dog exhibit. I'm going to be at the Philadelphia dog show. Why don't you come on over, take a look. So I did. And of course, he emailed a number of other dog handlers. They were both sentry and scout dogs from different branches of the military. So we went over there and we helped him out a while. We did a couple other shows with him. And then we said, it was about, there was five of us, uh, uh, myself, an army scout dog handler and three sentry dog handlers, army, uh, air force sentry dog handlers. We kind of hit it off and we said, why don't we start doing this? And so we start going around the country with, with a war dog exhibit. And then we became a nonprofit uh, and we became the United States War Dogs Association. 
and we put our first memorial up in New Jersey, War Dog Memorial. Do you work then, pretty close with Bill Cummings then? Oh yeah, yeah, Bill, Bill and I know each other, sure. Yeah. Sounds like a lot of what he does as well. Yeah, yeah, Bill, Bill would, Bill would call me if he had like, uh, he needed some care packages sent out. He couldn't handle it at that time. He called me and asked if I could do it. I'd send out the care packages. So we started the organization and in 2003, um, we start sending troops over to Afghanistan and then Iraq. So we started a care package program. And we we're sending care packages over there until they finally pulled out about a year or so ago. Um, we sent probably over 30,000 care packages during that, what, 17 years that we were there. Yeah. So, so I, I, I turned over the organization a year ago, about a year ago now, um, to a new president. I was the president all these years. I turned it over to Chris Willingham. Chris was a Marine scout dog handler, kennel master. Uh, he's at Camp, Camp Pendleton, uh, Camp Lejeune, deployed a number of times as kennel master, dog handler, then kennel master, uh, worked at the Pentagon. Uh, and he retired about three and a half years ago. And I and and he trains dogs for the Secret Service now. Wow! Down in Maryland, and I thought he'd be a good person to take over the unit, uh, the organization. So he accepted, and he's the president. And I actually relinquished everything about a week ago. He came up here, and we finalized everything. It took about a year or so for the final transition. You know, so so now I'm done with that. I turned this definitely into a museum. And you can see here, this is a pool table. Just I thought got it, it was in. your work table. <laughs> pool table. Just got it in and uh, we're all set up. Uh, and we'll have veteran dog handlers come on over from uh, McGuire, Fort Dix McGuire, uh, a few Marine do uh, retired dog handlers that I know that are like 20 minutes away. Invite them all over, come on over, shoot some pool, have a few beers. I got dartboards outside, dartboard outside, they play darts, you know, and just have, have a relaxing day here. Uh, so that's what I've set up here now. So that'll keep me something to do, that's you know, and, and still keep my hand in, in with the war dogs, the handlers. So, Fantastic. Learned a yeah. lot. Good history stuff. Yeah, I, you know, I I wish I had some place to go when we got back. There was no place to go for us. Yeah. No support. Yeah, you know, we had no support. We got back. People didn't even want to talk to us. Some of them didn't even want to talk to us because we served in Vietnam. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. how it was. Yeah, I, I never I never had a bad experience when I got back where people called me names or spit at me or anything like that. But I I, I could see some people just quietly pulled away friends that you thought were friends no longer bothered with you because they disagreed with what you did yeah yeah uh ruben guterres and i came back at the same time and okay. when we landed in seattle um i had to catch a plane to chicago and he was going to texas and we were walking down the hallway in our uniforms and 
And uh, we had several people call us names, spit on us, and really was a negative experience coming back. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, and, and we, we were hear, hearing about all this before we came back. We knew it was happening. So we were kind of trying to prepare ourselves that when we once we got back to the States, that we're going to have to put up the crap. You know, I was lucky. I, it was my flying in was late at night, getting in late at night and getting the plane from, from California to New York, which was like two in the morning. So there was really nobody out there. If it was during the daytime earlier, probably, I probably would have had that experience. But because it was in the middle of the night, I didn't have it. Yeah, we were, it seemed like it was middle of the day when we got back. Okay, see, that, that would have been it. You, you got yeah. all the demonstrators and the nasty people out there during the day. We, we didn't have that at night. Matter of fact, uh, they, I was supposed to get in much earlier in the night, but missed the plane, couldn't get the plane because we got in late. So I called home and I said, not getting in until like, you know, the plane's getting in at one in the morning or something like that, or one thirty in the morning. He said, no problem. We'll be there. And I didn't know they had, they had a big party waiting for me <laughs> <laughs> at, the, at my aunt, uncle's house. And they all stood there and waited until like, we got in. We didn't get in through three in the morning oh, and they God. were all still there. Those are dedicated partiers there. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, so all my family, they, they, I had no problem with my family. They were glad to see me, you know, uh, nothing changed there. But when it came to certain friends, yes, it did. I just lost them. You know, it's, not, it's like, you know, if I voted for Donald Trump and you're a Democrat, we're not going to talk anymore. You know, you know that, it, that it's, got, it's got ridiculous. You know, I shouldn't have lost my friends because I served in Vietnam. Yeah. We could have agreed to disagree. Exactly. And still be friends. You know, that, that's what you're supposed to do. You're still the same person that you knew all yeah, your life. I'm, I'm no different. My thoughts are still the same. You're still, as far as I'm concerned, you're my friend. You're my family. You're my friends. Shouldn't change, but it, unfortunately, it did. Yeah. Yeah. That's too bad. Yes. Well, so anyway, I did deal. I deal dealt with PTSD. Got to the VA, uh, and they they straighten me out. You know, I, I take my meds every day, and I probably in, in the last twelve years, I've only lost my temper maybe twice. Wow, big difference. Yeah, yeah, big difference, you know. I I took up uh, drinking and fighting, and uh, the only thing that saved me is I was a cop. I went from the military into law enforcement. Okay. And uh, I started the canine unit in Rapid City, South Dakota. Oh, okay, cool. And so <clears throat> if I got drunk in ornery, you know, the bartenders all knew me, so they'd call the police and they'd come down and get me and escort me back home or uh -huh. settle me down somehow. So, yeah. Uh, well, I think that was one of my problems too. I start drinking a lot more. Yeah. I did start drinking a lot more. Yeah. It took me probably six years to get over that settle mm -hmm. down, but I still had some anger issues. I hated authority. 
Uh, yeah, I, I understand that. I had, I got back, I wasn't back less than a year. I was living with my aunt and uncle in Hamilton, Hamilton, New Jersey. And a good friend of his, uh, John Danola, he was an attorney. Uh, and I had gone to school with his son, so I had met him earlier. And he comes over for dinner with his, his uh, he was divorced, his lady friend. And we're talking, he said, what you doing in Vietnam? I'm telling him about the dogs, you know, all that stuff. He says, you think you'd be interested in doing that for the state police? I says, why? He says, well, I know uh, Colonel Pagano. He was the, the head of the state police in New Jersey. Well, I said, I don't know. I'd have to think on it. He went to Pagano and they offered me the position to start up canine division for the New Jersey State Police. And I thought what you said about authority, have to deal with that, wearing a uniform and have to deal with the authority. And I, I, I just couldn't do it. Yeah. And I, I said, I'm sorry. I said, you know, I, I just can't do it. And I turned it down. Uh, my uncle was pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> then I turned it down. It because it was a good position, but I didn't want to get back into that military type atmosphere because it would be same like military, yeah, authority, and I just didn't want to deal with any of that. I just I really wanted to just be left alone at that point, you know. Yeah, it was, it was, I, I think it was good and bad. It, it was good in the sense it kept me out of jail. <laughs> it, it, was, it was probably bad on the way that uh, I handled situations sometimes. Yeah, but you had, you know, it, it's something, you, it was hard to control. Actually, you didn't even know you had PTSD. No, we didn't even know what it was then. No, no, I, I that's, you know, uh, when I went in 82, I went to Philadelphia to the VA. They didn't know what PTSD was at that time. They were still saying, uh, uh, what, was, what, did they, what did they say? World War II shock? Oh, shell shock. Shell shock. They were still using those words. Oh, God. So what is it? And they couldn't tell me what it was. And that's it. Like I said, I said, after six months, I'm going, I could do as much at home as they're doing for me here. Yeah, and I got to take a bus in there every day, you know, the half hour to get there. Then I got to walk to the VA, then go back and get on the bus. And, and I said, this is not worth it. Uh, but I'm, I'm really glad that I listened to my friend and I did go back to the VA when he forced me, it, it insisted I should do it. And I was glad I did went and, and they did help me out. They, I mean, they do a total evaluation of me, you know, uh, everything. I've heard some really good stories about the VA and how they've helped people. Bob Mays, I don't know if you know Bob. Yeah, yeah. Bill Fisher, um, several of them have, have talked about their visits to the VA and how much good it did. So I'm glad to hear I, that. Yeah, I find that a lot of guys that go there and they come back and they, they you know, nothing but complaints is that they got a chip on their shoulder in the first place. They think 
because they're a veteran, they got to get special treatment. And you don't need to get special treatment. You just need to get be treated like yeah. everybody else. You know, I went there, you know, I was expecting not anything good. And I was just totally surprised how great they were. And most of them that were working there were veterans. Yeah, it's always here. We got a great VA in Tucson. Yeah, good. That's great. You know, uh, I've had people, Florida, down in Florida, they got some really bad VAs down there. Because uh, I hear bad stuff from a lot of people that live down in Florida. But healthcare in general is bad in Florida, even as civilians. So, so that's nothing surprising, but yeah, I've, I've always had good treatment, no complaints. Uh, I went in, I went in, my wife kept telling me I can't hear out of my left ear. So I went in, had it tested and I said, yeah, I said my left ear and they got done with the test. And he said, no, nah, your left ear is okay. He says, actually, he says, it's both your ears. <laughs> you lose an hearing in both of them. It's all great. You know, so, I'm not going to tell that to my wife though. <laughs> Yeah, I've been you know, I've been wearing she hearing she aids. Doesn't realize, for, she doesn't realize I, I hear only what I want to hear. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Gotta yeah. ignore it. It's <laughs> not that I can't hear it. <laughs> no wonder you're still married, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Long time. Got married in the six, 60, 67, December 67. And I'm always proud to say I'm married to the same person. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> we're, we're, we're in Texas. My youngest son got married a few years ago. And they had the dance and they said, okay, who's been married over 10 years? Who's been married over 20 years? And if I got to who's been married over 50 years, it's just Judy and I, my wife and I. <laughs> so the MC says, what's the secret? I said, I said, I looked at my son, Nick. I said, just keep saying yes, 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 yes. Never yes, say dear. no. Yes, dear. So, so, so her her grandfather comes over. He says, oh, I think we were married at, like, at that time, 51 years. He says, oh, I, I, I got you beat by two. I looked at him. I said, no, you don't. I said, because you're divorced. <laughs> you got divorced a long time ago. <laughs> Well, well, thank you, Ron. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, I, I, yeah I like talking about the dogs. I mean, you know, I have no problem with it, uh, talking about what I did over there. Maybe when I first came home, I did. But I finally, I think once I start to get the PTSD straightened out and everything, it was so much easier for me to talk about it, you know? Uh, and so I'm always happy when somebody calls me, they want to talk or stop, they stop in uh, and they want to talk about the dogs and hear about the dogs. I'm glad to talk about it. I get school kids to come over here, 4-H clubs, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. Do they come over and help with the care packages? Oh, and they give a little tour, tell them about what the dogs did. Got a, got a little promotional video, shows the dogs working in the Middle East, you know. Uh, I love it. it uh, if I had to do it all over again, I'd do it over again. I, I'm with you. I'd do the yeah. same thing. I think, I think the fact that you're sharing that information with young kids is so important and so valuable. And just teaching our children about 
the value and importance of veterans and what they've done for our country, I think is extremely important. So what you've yeah, done is and, really good. Thank you. And, and our advantage is the dog. When we talk about the dogs, because they love dogs. Yep. They love animals. We picked the New Jersey War Dog Memorial up in Homedale, New Jersey for our memorial because they had an educational center. And they have school kids, school buses come during a week. And they have all the kids come around and learn about Vietnam. And they, what they, the way they have it set up is you go inside, it's in a round. And they have murals on a wall and then they have posters on stands. And it's what was happening in 1971 or 1969 in Vietnam. And then you look down and what was happening in 1969 in the United States at the same time. And they talk about that and they go, it's in a round. And then they show a movie. And then they take the kids go out the back door and they go back to the wall, which is again in a round. But when we saw the children, the number of children that were coming there, we said, this is perfect for our memorial, War Dog Memorial, because we want kids to learn about what we did there, what these dogs accomplished for us. And when we did the day we were putting it in, the memorial in, we had the we had the cement down, the walkway, everything, and the truck there with a little crane. So the truck pulls in and they got the, the bronze in the truck. It just so happens somehow the nose of the dog is sticking out the side of the truck and a school bus pulls in with these young middle school kids, 12 years old, 13. And one of them sees the dog's nose and he goes, a dog! <laughs> and everybody come rushing over. It must have been 30 kids. They come rushing over. And go, What's the dog? What's the dog? They were so excited. So he says, stand back and you'll see it just in a second. And we, we pulled the dog up, set it down on the base and everything. And they were able to watch it while we did this. They were like thrilled so much. It'll be something to remember forever. Yeah, it, it really, it was just a, a great experience. So so we, we knew that day that we picked the right place. Because they were, so when they go out the back door now, before, and they get to the walkway that leads you to the back of where the memorial is, the dog and handler's facing them. It's the guardian of the memorial now. It guards that memorial, Vietnam Memorial. So that's, so when the dog, kids come out, the first thing they see is the dog and the handler. So it's exciting for them. And they go and they walk around and touch it and everything. And then, now it's kind of lightened everything up. Now they're going to walk to the back where they're going to see the names on the wall of everyone who's, who died, which is more somber. But, so that's kind of lightened it up a little bit for them before they got back there. Yeah, you know, so, so we're really thrilled with that. Well, you've done a great job, Chief. Well, my, one of my best experiences was I, I, when I came out, I, I, I went to live with my uncle and aunt. And my wife, too. So I worked for my uncle for a year. He was an auctioneer. And of course, working for your family never works out. So I had to get a job. So I go to WT Grand Company back then. The retail 
giant store and apply for a job. So I, I fill out the application and it says, you know, what did you do? I said, I had to put down Vietnam, Marine Corps, Vietnam and all that stuff. So he calls me into the office and I go and sit down, introduce myself and he's looking at, he's looking at my application. He says, oh, you served in Vietnam. And I'm thinking, oh shit. <laughs> He says, thank you for your service. And then he said, when can you start? Wow, those were nice and, words. And, and hired me immediately. <laughs> so it was actually a plus for me at that point. And that would have been uh, 1969, 70. When well, that that's unusual time for that. Yeah, because Vietnam was still going on. Yeah. Uh, but he, yeah, he said, thank you for your service. Uh, he never served, but he said, thank you for your service. And then when can you start? <laughs> I said, I could start tomorrow. So I, I mean, I, I worked at so many jobs. You know, I worked W. Grant, D. Grants. I worked for Howard Johnson Restaurants and Lounge. I worked for a shoe company. Uh, I, I just bounced around for like almost 10 years. After I got out of the military, I bounced around. That was one of my problems, I think, and that was probably PTSD too. Yeah. I couldn't stay in one place for long. A year, maybe a little, a year and a half, and I, I had to move. And my wife, God bless her, she went along with it. She knew, you know, we, we would go, uh, go down to Florida on vacation. Her mother lived down there, uh, and that's where she originally was from. And go on vacation, I'd say, let's come back and say let's move to florida and she would go along with it. i go in and give my two-week notice and we moved to florida we came back to new jersey and then one time i says why don't we move to california we sold everything we had a van we kept the skis and the cat and headed west for three months went skiing colorado wyoming got to california hated it it was terrible polluted the people were not friendly you know and we said looked at each other said what the hell are we going to do now and I, we looked at he said go back to florida <laughs> we said okay so we went back to drove to florida key west had to get a job i lied my ass off got a job with howard johnson restaurants i knew how to cook and i knew how to manage so you know no big deal and so uh, I had my own restaurant in six months. <laughs> wow. And I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And I said, but working long hours. I said to Judy, I said, I'm getting tired. Let's move back to New Jersey. She said, okay. So we moved back to New Jersey. We went back and forth, back and forth. Um, and, and finally, when we did get back to New Jersey, um, I'm like in my late 30s. <laughs> Maybe we had to settle down. And then, and then we, my wife at that point, then we get back. We're here a year, two, a couple of years. That's when she said she'd like to have children. And I'm thinking, I don't want children. I'm afraid and all that stuff. Uh, and so we finally settled down. I was like 40 years old when we settled down. Yeah. Uh, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't stay in one place for a long time. It, it, I get bored. Yeah. I, you know, and it, when you when you work with the dog normally you're alone i mean i 
for those four years I handled the dog in the military. Right. I, I was out there by myself. And then when I went into law enforcement, I started canine there. So I was in a car with a dog. I didn't have a partner other than my dog. So you're always with that animal. And I think there is something that must come out of that because I had that same problem. I mean, I, I changed jobs uh, pretty frequently there for a while and I moved and again, like your wife. Yeah. Thank God she followed me. <laughs> she, she, she went along with you. Yeah. yeah she, knew, she knew you were screwed up. <laughs> now, my, she probably figured that out the first couple of weeks. Wife, yeah, she she probably figured that out before we got married. But <laughs> but she yeah, God bless her. I mean, she she went along with all of it all those years, you know. Um, so, but we've been here, you know, living here in the same house for a long time. Raised our two boys, you know, uh, and they're gone now, and. Uh, uh, I'm retired for the second time. Uh, <laughs> I can't retire too often. <laughs> hopefully we could do something, you know, together. Well, listen, Ron, you take care. All guy. right, you take care, Tom. Best to you. See you later, guy. Yep, you too.